Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire lives. All right. Uh, what I want to talk about today is the, the challenge of working with words as a Christian in the contemporary, contemporary society. As I think about the, the various ways you can be a writer and the various challenges, what uh, overcame me, what struck me as the most significant was the way in which uh, truth and the possibility of genuinely communicating um, seems to be fairly tenuous today. Now, uh, of course, you know, I have the, the last uh, election is part of, in, in part in mind, uh, but it's much, much bigger than that. Um, what I'm going to argue is that we have a communication crisis and an epistemological crisis. And as Christians who are writing, we need to think carefully and strategically about what it means to communicate in light of the barriers and the challenges that our readers are going to be coming to our texts with. Now, um, I don't have a very specific idea of, of, of writing in mind here. This could include creative writing, because uh, although I'm going to focus on persuasion, creative writing persuades just in different forms. It might not be its primary purpose, but it always persuades in some way. So I'm, I'm speaking here about writing in general, whether that's um, uh, you know, a, a personal blog or writing articles or books, whatever it might be. And I think, um, well, let me say this. I, I, <laughs> it doesn't feel like anyone knows what they're doing right now. Uh, it doesn't seem like we know how to talk to one another, how to listen, or to persuade without manipulating, to communicate without being condescending. And I'm not just talking here about trivial things, you know, uh, sports, for example, or um, uh, musical preferences. Um, but sometimes topics that have real life and death implications. It feels like we don't know how to communicate. Um, excuse me. Let's see. I want to make sure I can. I don't see anyone. I just want to make sure that I see you guys. And I don't see you guys. Oh, I think I know her. Sorry, I'm running two monitors. <laughs> and I forgot. Oh, there you are, down there, I guess. Okay, <laughs> forgive me. All right, as I was saying, I don't just mean trivial things. I mean very serious things, uh, theological issues, p- political issues, social issues. Uh, we struggle to be able to communicate well. No matter what issue you consider, no matter what community you're talking about, No matter what medium of communication, I don't think you can honestly and knowledgeably look at the way we talk to each other today and come away thinking, I guess uh, things are okay. We're we're doing pretty good. Uh, I don't think you can come away feeling confident. Now, of course, this is uh, not a trivial matter because our ability to reason together is central to our ability to live together. It's also central to our ability to share the gospel, to fight injustice, to do all the things that are central to our humanity, you need to be able to reason together. And we're not doing a very good job of it. 
In fact, it's so bad, I think sometimes it's hard, it's hard to be hopeful that things are going to improve. It's hard to sit back and imagine, well, uh, these changes will be made. So, for example, it's difficult for me to sit back and think, well, if our education system, if our public education was, was simply better, um, then uh, we would be at the place where uh, we can expect that we would reason together better. Uh, but I don't think that's I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case. I don't think it's as simple as that. Um, which is ironic because we have more ways of communicating than at any other time in history. It's mind-boggling, really. Uh, you can communicate with almost anyone about almost any topic at almost any time in almost any medium. Images, video, text. That's mind-boggling. It's amazing. Uh, our ability to communicate uh, in a purely technical sense uh, is uh, uh, easier, is greater and greater, our ability, our capacity to. But our ability to communicate effectively and meaningfully and truthfully, not so much. Here we are, we have more information than in the past. We have more abilities to communicate than ever before. And we can't seem to have a reasonable conversation. Um, uh, as I, uh, so, so I work with, with college students, uh, as a professor, and it's been interesting over the years seeing, uh, talking to my students about their views on, uh, whether it's theological issues or political issues. Many of my students will say that they simply don't want to have conversations with their parents about these issues because there's almost this hopelessness that that conversation is going to digress into an argument and so it's not even really worth having. We don't trust each other. That's part of the problem. Many people implicitly or explicitly deny that truth is knowable. That's another major problem. We twist each other's words. We use memes to shout out our preferences into the void. We pounce on each other's missteps. More often than not, and this is key, more often than not, I don't think we try to persuade each other. I don't think we try to persuade each other. Instead, we posture publicly to affirm our identity. Well, so far, I've been very abstract. So let, let's, let's try to be a little bit more specific. Think about the way your family and friends publicly discussed, let's say, the last election cycle. Or maybe think about the way some, uh, I would say too many, Christian apologists or political fi uh, uh, public figures focus their energy on denigrating other people rather than communicating the beauty of their faith. Or maybe think about the last argument you got into on social media. We're all very good at expressing our perspectives, but we're fairly horrid at persuading anyone. Now, that doesn't mean that we, can for we can't force people to change. Um, actually, we're good at manipulating people. We're not good at persuading people, but we're pretty good at manipulating people through advertising and lies. And we can also bully. We're pretty good at bullying, too. Bullying people into agreeing with us, coercing them. But what I'm talking about, what, what I want us to pursue is actual persuasion. Someone coming to alter their way of thinking because they desire a better way. They desire the good. Not out of fear and not 
unconsciously because you have coerced them through technology, let's say, but because they've been won over by what's true, what's good, and what's beautiful. But instead, we desire, we tend to desire people to know who we are by what we express. Our, uh, and I, I don't want to use, <laughs> I'm hesitant to use examples because there are, uh, so many examples would be contested. And I don't want you to get distracted by the, the details. But just, I mean, if you just think about the kinds of arguments you find on social media or opinion columns or on, you know, cable news, so often the arguments are not actually uh, trying to persuade anyone, not trying to win anyone over. They're really about signaling. They're really about signaling people to people something about us. Not the truth, but something about us. I want to be, for example, I might want to be known as the person who cares about racial injustice, or I want to be known as the person who cares about the unborn, or I want to be known as the person who likes the right sort of films, or the right sort of music, or who has the right sort of opinion or hot take on the latest popular television show. Or maybe um, the reason that I am making arguments publicly whether in a small form in social media posts or larger articles or even a book form, maybe the main thing that I am doing is trying to identify with a specific group by denigrating another group. Another possibility is that the content actually doesn't matter, that what we're trying to argue isn't really that important. What's more important is that we try to be witty and clever. What's more important is that people see us as they say, dunking on other people on social media or in our writings, right? We're known as having certain, a certain identity, certain characteristics. One major reason we don't see these kinds of transformations, actual persuasion that I've described happening very often is that uh, we suffer under an epistemological crisis. So this is a crisis of truth, and we're all very cynical about the truth. If there is such a thing as truth, it feels impossible to know. Why? Well, because experts regularly get things wrong. Because uh, the elites who have earned their elite status through education or research or whatever it might be, regularly abuse their authority and abuse the truth in the process. After this happens so many times, after there is incident after incident of, of uh, authority figures, of experts getting things profoundly wrong or intentionally lying, whether it, it's out of a you know, goodwill or not, it's hard to believe in truth. It's hard. If truth exists at all, it's something we all use to get what we want. And um, this, I'm afraid, is a very common view. It's not something that we would probably articulate, but um, we use truth not so much as a thing that exists out there that we conform to, but instead as a tool for our political agenda or our religious agenda, our social agenda, whatever it might, our identity agenda, whatever it might be. So the key here is that truth is something that is subject to our wills. Truth is something that we can use. Facts are things that we can use as tools. We can bend to our purpose, but we're never subject to truth. And we have 
as I said, really good reasons for being cynical about the truth. This epistemological crisis, the, uh, the difficulty so many people have in trusting, in uh, believing that we can ascertain the truth, that we can communicate the truth, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. Right? Uh, it, in many ways, it feels like the whole world is trying to deceive you. If you think about growing up in, in a society where advertisements, which are very explicitly trying to deceive you uh, into buying something that very often you don't need, um, when those are so common, uh, it makes sense for us to be walking around with cynicism, highly skeptical that we can know anything that's true. And of course, writing is always going to be about truth to some extent. And if people don't feel like truth is ascertainable, they're not going to listen when we convey the truth. It feels like everyone wants our attention, everyone wants our money, everyone has an agenda. And now that's always been true, right? People have always had agendas. That's not a, a contemporary thing. What hasn't always been true, though, is that we haven't always had the technology that we currently have to uh, very specifically target people. So for example, the use of Facebook advertisements to target very specific demographics to discourage voter turnout. That's something that's possible today that was not possible in the past. There are tools of manipulation available for people today that were not available in the past. And because we're all aware of this, we all feel the contestedness of the society that we live in. We all feel the, uh, the, the deception. The, the, uh, we all feel this cynicism. It's hard for us to think that truth is a real thing that we can get to and that we can communicate. Uh, in a highly contested and highly deceptive society, at some point, you just stop caring. You just stop trying to know the truth. And this is very important. Thinking about writing, in a highly contested and a highly deceptive society, at a certain point, people just stop trying. They stop trying to know the truth. And instead, they turn inward. They turn inward. Uh, so you end up relying on your innate sense of things or your intuition, trying to sort out what is true, what happened in this historical event, or what does this really mean is exhausting, and it feels sometimes hopeless. And so instead, what you do is you rely on your instincts. You turn inward. And you stop looking for the truth. You feel that everybody is trying to spin. All, all people are doing is providing their own spin on things. A danger is that once readers make this move, um, and once you know readers have made this move, uh, very often, writers stop trying to earnestly persuade their neighbor because you assume that they're just as cynical as you are. So the person over there who disagrees with me, there's no truth that I can give him. There's no argument that I can give him that will win him over because truth feels too ephemeral. It's too hypothetical. That reader is only going to rely on his own or her own inner resources and their own intuition. So if I can't persuade them, what am I even doing by writing? What's the point of writing if I can't even persuade someone who disagrees with me? Well, there are a number of things. Um, 
once you believe that your your reader is as cynical as you are about truth, um, you can decide, well, the, the next best, best thing to do is just to shout into the void. And uh, you see this quite often in writing, in public writing, whether, again, it's uh, opinion columns or whether it's um, something read on a uh, cable news or whether it's a book or an article. People who aren't actually trying to, to communicate to people who disagree and win them over to ask them to consider a different perspective. Instead, what they're trying to do is just shout, you're wrong, <laughs> and I've got it figured out. Please listen to me, right? A, a shouting into the void. Uh, another response is nihilism. I, I think this is actually the more popular response. Um, if you do an analysis of memes, for example, this is often the case, right? This is often the underlying or the overwhelming message that, boy, we really can't communicate. We really can't win people over. I don't really have a chance of persuading someone. So what I have left is to laugh, just to laugh at it all. It's sort of hopeless that maybe the best thing we can do is have a good laugh at it. And so what are we left with? We're left with millions of people expressing themselves so that they're known as certain kinds of people, so forming an identity, which we could call expressive individualism. Or we have uh, millions of people trying to coerce other people. Sometimes they say for their own good. But coerce them nevertheless. Lie to them, manipulate the facts, because if you think that truth is not something that is tangible and real and that matters, then you're free to bend the truth however you want to do what you think is best. One time I heard a, a story from, from somebody I trust uh, um, very, very well. He was telling me the story of two Christian historians, two Christian historians. The first historian wasn't really much of a historian at all, um, but he was very concerned about his political, uh, his political beliefs, his political agenda. And he would make publicly certain uh, historical arguments about the nature of our country and how it related to our faith. And he'd make them very fervently, and he'd make them very uh, in book after book, in television appearance after television appearance. The, the problem was that other historians, who even historians who shared a lot of his political beliefs, would he read these books and say, this is wrong. Like, <laughs> these founding fathers didn't say this, or this isn't what happened. You're, you're lying. And so one day, um, this historian, this sort of pseudo-historian, and an, a very well-respected Christian historian um, uh, met to hash it out in person. You know, they had written back and forth, and uh, but they were going to hash it out in person. So the what I will call a, a, a legitimate historian said, "Look, look at these facts. Here's these truths. These historical documents. This is this is reality. You're misrepresenting the truth." And um, the pseudo-historian replied, well, it may be that I'm twisting facts here. It may be that I'm exaggerating things. But our country is in so much trouble that it's better to present a falsehood that I know will effectively persuade people to come to my political agenda. It's better to tell them a lie that'll help them come to my political agenda than to let the country go down the toilet. And that kind of nihilism, I, I tell the story, um, and I'm not mentioning any names because the, the names don't matter. What matters here is I, I need you to see that 
the nihilism, the hopelessness about the nature of truth that I'm describing is not something that's exclusive to non-Christians or to, you know, uh, very secular people or, or whatever. It's infected our entire society. It's very common for people to feel like there is no effective way to persuade my neighbor. There's no effective way to communicate or know the truth. So the only thing that matters is I fight for what I think is true. And if that means deceiving people, as long as it's for, the, as long as it's for their good, then it's moral. That's a frightening place to be. It's a very frightening place to be. Now, um, I've described these problems as the bra- background to what I want to talk about as Christians writing. Right? These the, the, the communication crisis, but also the epistemological crisis, which work hand in hand, are the background in which Christians are writing today, and the background in which we have to be aware. The good news is that we have resources to resist both of these crises. We have resources in our faith to help us write in a manner that resists these, the momentum of these movements. I'm not going to say that if you follow the recommendations I'm about to give you, that we're going to fix the epistemological crisis, that, that we're going to return to you know, the belief that we can share truths publicly. Uh, I, um, I'm past grandiose grandiose uh, um, promises like that. And frankly, I don't think it matters. What I'm going to describe are a series of principles that as Christians, we need to adhere to, even if it doesn't radically change the world in our own time, because they're just good. All right. uh, Christian principles for writing. Uh, three things that I want to point to. Three things I'm going to expand upon each of these points. First, God calls us to desire the good of our reader. Okay? This is radically different from the conceptions of rhetoric, which is the art of persuasion, the conceptions of rhetoric that dominate the current market and the media and entertainment, and uh, writing, literature, whatever you want to say, okay? This is a markedly different view. Because in those spheres, the dominant view is the point of rhetoric, the point of writing is to uh, get your reader to do something that you want. But as Christians, uh, that's not an option for us. We have to desire that our readers we have to desire our readers good. Not just that our readers you know, think like we think, but we actually have to desire their good. What is good for them? Second, we have to believe that the truth exists and it's beautiful and it's good and it's worth fighting for. Everything is not just a matter of opinion or personal experience. The truth actually exists, and it's possible to communicate it. It's very difficult at times, and we'll we'll always do it incompletely, but it's worth trying. It's worth striving for. And the third thing is um, we have to have hope. We don't have the luxury of cynicism. We don't have the luxury of nihilism, Uh, the sort of LOL, you know, what can you do? perspective that is very popular. Christians don't have that freedom, not righteously at least. 
So what do I, what do I mean by desiring the good of, of your reader? Whatever form you are writing, whatever, whatever genre, whatever medium, I would beg you <laughs> to cultivate a desire for the good of your reader. I believe that our task before God, if you're writing, whatever format, your task before God is to pursue the good of the reader. Not to sell, not to make a name for yourself, not to craft an identity, not to express yourself, not to manipulate people or to achieve some agenda, but the good of the reader. And if this perspective is one that you genuinely adopt, that it, it gets into your imagination, then you're going to desire to know your reader, right? You can't really desire the good for someone who you, you don't know at all. Your neighbor will become important to you, more important to you. And, and not just so that you can manipulate them more efficiently or effectively, but because you want to know what they need. Now, uh, in the writing process, this appears in several different places. For example, um, when I'm thinking about um, desiring the good of my reader uh, at the beginning of a writing project, that means I'm looking for problems in, my, in a com specific community. So in other words, I'm looking and I'm trying to see what is it that my audience needs? I could give them, I could write this kind of book or this kind of article that makes them feel good about themselves, that's, uh, that confirms the things they already believe, that tickles their ears, that makes them feel better about themselves, but maybe they need to hear these hard truths. Maybe that isn't going to sell very well, but maybe that's the loving thing to do for them. So at the beginning of the writing process, and actually all the way through it, you should be thinking about the, about the good of the reader. And I don't, don't make this abstract. Make this real in your imagination. Um, and I would recommend to you that you particularly have in mind the reader who's hostile, the reader who is less likely to agree with your perspective, who is um, antagonistic towards your worldview or your ideas. Imagine that person. And as you're writing, what does your heart desire for that person? Imagine them having the chance to sit down and read your article or your essay or your short story or your book, whatever. Your social media post even. Absolutely. This, this applies there just as well. What does your heart feel towards them? Because what I'm afraid of, what I'm terrified of, is that when we sit down to write and we think about making an argument, when we do visualize the people who are hostile towards our argument, what we feel towards them is anger or bitterness or the desire to dunk on them, as they say on the internet, or embarrass them or destroy them or tear them down. But it's difficult for us to imagine what would really be good for them. If what you believe is good, if what you believe is true, if what you're arguing is good and true and beautiful, then in your heart, you should think, you should feel, I want this person to pick up this text and read it and repent or be enlightened or, or come to this insight 
because that would really be good for them. It, what wouldn't be good for them is to, them to be publicly embarrassed or to be you know, a disaster or for you to be um, known as the person who destroyed this other author or destroyed the perspective of these, this group of people. What would be good is if they came to the truth. This means that you have to treat your reader as a human person. Um, uh, this <laughs> should be obvious, but our technology actually encourages us not to think of the reader as a human person. Our technology um, is focused on metrics, and metrics always dehumanize, right? And so if you think about publishing on the internet, for example, there is a tremendous focus on page views or the number of users or the number of shares, right? If you're writing a books, you know, book sales, right? Whatever medium you're, you're, you're writing in, there can be a tendency to think of these people, these readers, not as individual human beings who stand before God and are made in his image, but as units, as page views, as tools, as opportunities for you to be successful. We don't have that liberty because it's not actually liberty. Uh, relatedly, we need to remember that the means matter. The means matter. It's not just the end. It's not just getting to our, our, our final conclusion. The way we get there in your writing, whether it's an argument or whether it's creative, matters. Practically, um, <laughs> that means that you have no right to manipulate or deceive your reader, no matter how just your cause is. This is, uh, from a marketing, from a you know, a, a market perspective, a distinct disadvantage of being a Christian writer. There are you're simply not free to use any motive you want to get people to your side. You're not free to make any kind of appeal. There are some appeals to to desire certain desires that are sinful, certain fears that are sinful, that you're not allowed to appeal to, because it's not loving to your reader. It's not, you don't have the right to use words any way you want just to manipulate people. You don't have the right to use the truth or twist the truth however you want to get people to your perspective. Uh, this is a reality, and it is a challenge for being a Christian writer. Because practically speaking, if you want to get people to read you, you tell them what flatters them. You tell them how they are right. You tell them how they are okay and how those people over there aren't and how they're wrong. And you both point and laugh at them or shake your fists at them. And that's a lucrative way to be a writer. But it's not a moral way and it's not a Christian way. You have to desire the good of your reader. Second, truth. Um, we have to believe that truth can be both known, even if only partially. Okay, that's true. We can't. We are not omniscient, but we can know truths partially, and we have to believe that they can be communicated. We have to believe that they can be communicated. It occurs to me that that uh, as I wrote here, that I think I think the gospel depends on this. The gospel actually depends on this. If truth is not something that is real, if everything is just personal perspective and personal experience, or if we can't communicate the truth, then when we try to share the gospel, all we're doing is trying to manipulate people to come to, to buy into our system. That's all we're doing. 
because our system isn't the true one. <laughs> we're not trying to win them over to what is right and good and true and beautiful. We're just trying to get them on our side. If there is no truth, then sharing the gospel is just another way of selling something. Now, um, it's easy to say, okay, truth is real, Dr. Noble. All right, I buy that. Um, and uh, I hope it's the case that most evangelicals would say, well, yes, I, I agree with that. But it's possible to believe that the truth is, uh, can be known and communicated, but to use that truth as a kind of bludgeon. Because, of course, the reality is we get the truth wrong, often. Often. <laughs> that doesn't give us the, the right to stop striving to tell the truth in our writing, but we're going to get it wrong sometime. And so that's why I have this quote from T.S. Eliot. Uh, he says in Four Quartets, the uh, only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. That's the only wisdom we can hope to acquire as humans. The only real wisdom you can ever hope to acquire is humility. So what I want from us is to be a body of people who tell the truth in a society that is very cynical about the truth. To be a body of people who desire the good of their readers in a society that desires to manipulate readers for their own personal ends. And I want us to be a people that speaks the truth and when we get things wrong, we are not so cowardly as to deny it. That we have the courage to say quickly and immediately, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I'm sorry, I was wrong. One of the most painful things to witness on social media is when somebody advocates something really passionately, and then someone comes along and is like, oh, did you know you got the facts wrong? Like, that didn't actually happen, right? And then instead of just saying, gosh, wow, I misread that. I'm sorry. The person doubles down, right? And they try to, you know, they just keep digging this hole and everyone watching is like, oh, please stop. Stop. Just admit it. You got it wrong. You misread it. But our human heart, our pride often keeps us from doing that. So when I'm advocating, when I'm saying that the truth is, is important for us to believe in, we can't be cynical about truth. Uh, I also want us to equally keep in mind the importance of humility. If you have a high view of, of truth, you have to have a high view of humility. You, you have to be willing to say, I was wrong, and shrug it off. And this last point I make here, by treating truth as real as opposed to just a use of power. So again, truth is just something, remember that, that, that pseudo-historian who was using quote-unquote truth to as a, a source of power to manipulate people into an agenda that he genuinely believed was good for the good of those people. But truth was just a toy. It was like a, a um, clay that he could mold for his personal purposes. But if we reject that, if we treat it as real, not something that we get to manipulate, but it's something that we submit to, and we embody humility publicly in our writing, I think that writing is going to be a testament to the world that, that this is God's world, not our personal worlds, but God's world. And because of that, we submit to the truth. And we submit to, even when it means humility and public apology. All right, last point. Writing in hope. 
Um, so I don't know how many of you, uh, you know, write publicly or want to write publicly. Is it for a profession or part of a profession or for fun? But if you have done any writing um, and you're what I would call a normal person, you know that it's, it's a fairly terrifying prospect. Um, <laughs> it's, it's easy to lose hope. It's very easy to lose hope. Um, it's easy to get to the point, you know, um, you know, I, I think again about, you know, this last political, uh, cycle and about, um, you know, relatives who, uh, um, um, I, I wrote a few articles during this last political, uh, uh cycle and I don't want to be political, so I'm not going to talk about what they were about, but nevertheless, I wrote them and I tried to be winsome. And I remember my mom telling me, Hey, your uncle called and he's a little worried about you. He's a little worried about you because of this article you wrote. I thought, wow. Okay. Um, all right. And, and that kind of thing can discourage you. You could get to the point where you feel like those people are never going to change their minds. There, there's what is even the point of writing this article or this you know, the social media post or, or this book, what's, what's even the point? Because those people are so stuck. They're so cynical about the truth that they're so convinced of their own little thing. They're so dependent upon their intuition, their personal intuition. This is what I feel is likely true. And these people are tickling my ears. So I'm convinced it is true. That's so common. Why even bother? What's the point? And I want to say as Christians, we don't have the liberty of losing hope. If there is some good for you to communicate lovingly, even when rationally, even when statistically, there isn't good reason to believe that uh, you're going to make a difference, you're going to persuade you know, my, my uncle, I believe we still have the obligation to speak the truth in love. We still have to invite our reader, I still have to invite my uncle to believe what is true even if I'm pretty sure he's not going to change his opinion because at this point in his life, he doesn't really change opinions. And again, I, I want you to think in terms of imagination and your heart. When I say invite the reader to believe what is true, I do think it's a heart issue. I think subconsciously when you go to write a, a text and you go to write something, if in your heart, you don't actually desire your reader to come to the truth it's going to show up in your writing. It's going to show up. You're not going to invite them. And in fact, the reader will come to it and they will feel like, mm, ah, this isn't for me. There have been so many times where I've clicked on an article that um, is supposed to describe a perspective that I deeply disagree with. And I think, I want to give this a fair shake. And I begin to read the article. And right from the beginning, the author has said to me in one way or another, this isn't for you. I think you're an idiot. Don't bother reading any further. And usually I don't. I close the tab because they're not inviting me in. We have to argue for the true, the good, and the beautiful, even when it's unpopular, and it will be. I want to end on this note, another quote from, from Eliot. Uh, no, no, I don't. Uh, well, okay, two, two things. He says, take no thought of the harvest, but only of proper sowing. Um, and I, I think this is important for writers that we don't obsess about being effective, being efficient with our writing, but instead we think about writing what is good and true. I was wrong. I had one more slide I wanted to talk to you about because as I said, writing is a process that, in, at least in my experience, creates a lot of anxiety. 
um, who am I, who am I to, to write this? Uh, why should anyone listen to me? What's, what's the point? And I want to point to another line from Four Quartets where Eliot says, for us, there is only the trying. And he's talking about writing. He's talking about the, the practice of writing poetry in this case, but still. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. It's not your business. If your work, if the, the argument you're making, the truth you're trying to speak through a creative work, whatever it is, if it's truly good and it's truly for the good of your reader, then you should have no shame sharing it on social media. You shouldn't feel anxious about it, or anxiety or guilty or like a, like a hoax. If it's good, if it's for their good, get it out there. Because the, the point is not your writing. Uh, excuse me. The point is not about you. It's not about you expressing yourself. It's not about your reputation. And it's not about your image. It's about the good of the reader. And if you are trying to communicate some truth that you earnestly believe is for your reader's good, then don't doubt yourself. Don't feel anxious. Don't feel ashamed. Get it out there.